Hey everyone, before we get to the show today, I wanted to remind you that today is the first ever National Internal Medicine Day, so don't forget to go on social media and tag at ACP Internist. Use the hashtag I am proud to tell people why you're proud to be an internist and also use the hashtag National Internal Medicine Day. You can also enter the contest to win prizes at acponline.org forward slash I am proud. And finally, before we get to the show, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Dr. Bill Kelly and his wonderful team here at Chess who put on an amazing conference in New Orleans. This is the first of our of two recap shows that we did there, and we have two future episodes that are coming out with two of the wonderful faculty that they had here at Chess. Thank you so much to Dr. Kelly and his team for bringing us down here and giving us this opportunity. I hope you all enjoy these shows as much as we did. Hey guys, <laughs> don't call me comrade. Uh, comrade Stewart, <laughs> where are we right now? What are we doing? I'm not responding to that. That that's a first, uh, Paul. I think we should consider this a win. Fantastic. I think that we can call the show. Where where are we right now, Paul? Why don't you tell the audience uh, this this is a recap show that we're about to get into. Uh, where are we? Great question, Matt. Thanks so much for asking. We are at the 2019 Chess Conference being held in New Orleans, Louisiana. Yes, that's right. And we are right now, uh, we're recording in a, a space. You might hear a little bit of background noise. That's just the hustle and bustle of a busy convention center. And we <laughs> thought this was a cool recording setting. And before we started, I actually heard Dr. Watto asking, is there going to be a reception here? So hopefully we'll get some cocktail party sounds and glasses tinkling and that kind of stuff. And then hopefully also crash said cocktail party. That'd be excellent. So, Paul... There are cocktail parties around us? There has to be. Right? Paul, in case, in, case some people are, uh, in case some people are new to the show, why don't you tell them, why don't you tell them what it is we normally do on this show and what we'll be doing today? I, I think it's one of the same. We, we remain the Internal Medicine Podcast. We still use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. It's just we have a lot of expert interviews today. So we have a lot of uh, pulmonologists are helping us sort of talk about the highlights of the chess conference from from at least one day's worth of sessions, maybe sort of one plus. And so we got a lot of high yield, super great clinical pearls from a lot of really overqualified people. We also learned that Paul's an expert on IPF. I, I mean, I think this was probably known already. <laughs> we solidified that. So let's let's introduce with us is our our fearless producer, Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, Sarah, can you give the audience a little bit of a preview about what we talked about on the show today and um, a little bit about who our guests were? Absolutely. So we had some incredible physicians join us yesterday to share their uh, best clinical pearls um, and some of their favorite experiences from chess so far. And first among them is our very own Dr. Leah Witt. She schools us on how to correctly use inhalers. She shares pearls from her excellent and uh, widely applauded talk on Monday uh, about considerations for the geriatric patient with ILD. 
Um, we also have Dr. Erin Naruski. She reminds us that oxygen is not a treatment for dyspnea. Uh, and she also talks recent findings on metoprolol and beta blockers for COPD exacerbations, which is the block trial, I believe. Uh, next, we're joined by Dr. Chirina Chima-Melton. She updates us on the primary and adjunct therapy options for ILD, their side effects, and how they can be used in patients with IPF and comorbid severe GERD. And then we have Dr. Nina uh, Malanin. She breaks down a panel discussion on lung cancer screening, and she does a great job talking about how the geographic distribution of lung cancer screening programs is really failing those who are at the highest risk of being diagnosed with lung cancer. Um, and finally, we have Dr. Hassan Banshakron. He summarizes the What Is It To Be Me panel and the shared experience of imposter syndrome among underrepresented minorities in medicine. Uh, and you'll also hear him and really the entire group share some other commentary and uh, kind of bounce ideas off of each other. I, I have to say, this was a... <laughs> that was hero's work. This was a, a very special crew that we had recording, and it was it was just a pleasure. A lot of really good energy in the room, which I think will come through uh, as you hear this. Energy from everybody but me. Yeah, Stuart was near death, and everyone might be... <laughs> all of us, all the rest of us might now be brewing some sort of awful viral infection by, by hanging out with him. I truly think we should set that microphone on fire as soon as we're done. <laughs> Welcome to chest, guys. Welcome to chest. <laughs> Well, Leah, it's our first time recording together in person. I am so excited. So nice to be here. Finally meet you guys in person. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good to hug once in a while, you know? <laughs> All right. Like, agree to disagree. Le- <laughs> yeah. I uh, agree with Paul. That, that reminds me, very important. Everybody, if you see Paul Williams at a conference or in person, please hug him. He loves it. I have the flu. <laughs> it's Leah, flu, I- actually. You told us that you had a quiz for us here, so let's let's get on with it. Okay. Uh-oh. All right. Today, I went to the virtual patient tour on inhaler use, and I failed the pre-assessment miserably, so I want to quiz the three of you. Okay. Okay. So of meter dose inhalers, slow mist inhalers, and dry powder inhalers, which, if any, should you not shake before use? Dry mist, or the, or the dry powder ones. I, I believe Dr. Brigham is correct. Okay. Now, you, I, you made a face. I'm with those guys, but now I'm... Okay, but tell me why. There's no reason to? I, I don't remember <laughs> the... <laughs> um, it's combustible? <laughs> <laughs> because once you puncture the capsule, yeah. you can shake the powder everywhere. Okay, that's, that's fair. It's, it's already under pressure, right? Um, once, well, once you puncture the capsule, then the powder can come loose, basically. So this is something like teotropium. Exactly. You, you puncture the capsule, the dry medicine's waiting there to be inhaled. Right. So you don't have to. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So the other sort of pearls that I learned, number one, over 40% of people use their meter dose inhalers incorrectly. You should ideally be watching your patient's Um, use their inhalers. And for me, that involved learning how to use them myself. And a really good resource, the COPD Foundation has YouTube videos that you can watch before you're giving your patients tips on how to use inhalers. So for MDIs, the meter dose inhalers, you need to shake for at least five seconds before Mm -hmm. using and make sure this is where most people go wrong. You have to hold your breath for 10 seconds after using. I see a lot of geriatric patients and that can often be a big problem for them holding their breath. So that might be a place where I'd use a nebulizer. And then another pearl for geriatric patients is that they often don't have the inspiratory effort to make a teotropium dry powder inhaler worthwhile for them. And in, in fact, I would do the, the mist inhaler instead. 
the slow mist inhaler for um, the slow te- mist. teotropium. How, so that's the meter dose is like your standard albuterol. albuterol. You pump it. It's like kind of a mist that comes out. You can pump it into a spacer. Yep. Uh, how does the slow slow mist differ from that? So the slow mist is not um, doesn't have a propellant basically. Um, so I don't want to use trade names, because, but there's really only one device, right? Okay. That's a slow mist. Is that true? Yeah. That's okay. This yeah. is, we'll we'll forget the trade <laughs> right, name, exactly. friends. But but with a slow mist inhaler, you um, take sort of a, a deep, slow breath in, and the dry powdered inhalers, you have to take a rapid, forceful breath in for it to be effective. All right. Was uh, were, were there any any recommendations to use the spacers? Because typically, I with my MDI patients, I send them home with a spacer. Absolutely, definitely need to use a spacer. There's another really good YouTube video about using a spacer with an MDI that I show every patient. Um, a few tips, you know, drug delivery is better if you're breathing in too fast. You'll often hear a whistle if that the spacer that you are using makes that sound, and that means stop. You're breathing too fast. I did not know that. This is, I feel like this and weirdly nicotine patches are things that we just, good luck patient here, pick this up at the pharmacy, <laughs> catch on the flip side, my man, and then we hope that they actually... Nicotine gum's a huge one too. Well, and yeah. inhalers are so expensive, as we all know, if we've been on the phone with pharmacies and often every year, um, you know, formularies change. So it's right. really important that patients are actually getting the benefit of their inhaler. I, I, was, I was actually looking at the components and the price. It looks like the the inhaled corticosteroid is actually probably the most expensive component of the inhalers. Mm. Um, and so one of the things that I find is actually separate that out so I can actually titrate the dosage, allows, to, allows it to be a little cheaper for the patient on the back end. Interesting. Okay. We'll have to see if Chess will let us link to this handout they have because it, it, it summarizes like all the tips about the different types of inhalers. It has pictures of them and it tells you what kind they are and, and the pitfalls. Uh, you could you could keep quizzing us if you want to, or do you want to talk about the excellent talk that you gave yesterday on ILD and in geriatric patients? Definitely. So I chaired a session with three other amazing women, um, Dr. Rebecca Vidge, Marsha Glass, and then Dr. Helen Joe, um, and we talked about ILD in the geriatric patient. For my talk. Um, you know, I was talking about geriatric syndromes, which includes multimorbidity in ILD. And we have an upcoming episode about multimorbidity for the curbsider. So that can sort of be a prerequisite for you to care for your multimorbidity patients. But in ILD, it's very important. Most of these patients come with a lot of um, often other medical problems. And when we're thinking about starting medications that could cause um, adverse events, you have to think about time to benefit versus time to harm, which is a principle that we'll talk about in our upcoming episode as well. Yes. I love the graphic you had of all the puzzle pieces, how they fit together and everything. Um, I watched a YouTube video to learn how to make puzzle pieces <laughs> in PowerPoint. That's You did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. You um, had a slide that was so good, it literally made me angry. Where <laughs> it was it was sort of the, the patient, so it was the, the ILD considerations and then sort of the multimorbidity considerations and then the patient life considerations and this, the entire screen filled up with these little bubbles that actually just showed how complicated our patients can be and just mm-hmm. how to be mindful of all the interactions and things. It was, it was so good that I just, I, it was immediately resentful, which is usually a good sign. <laughs> I think the thing that made me uh, a little flustered is the fact I tried to find a seat and there was uh, no seats, quite literally. Yes, it was standing room only. <sighs> Yeah, it was a pretty exciting session um, and a lot of really good pearls. It was very multidisciplinary. So our final talk um, was a palliative medicine physician from Tulane, and she talked about creating shortness of breath action plans for patients, which is, um, you know, it's like creating an asthma action plan. It's something for patients to have at home on the refrigerator. So instead of calling 911, they have some tips for what to do at home. 
Any of those that you wanted to quickly share before we bring up Dr. Noreski? Um, Some tips she talked about were, you know, just bringing in a friend or family member to help you take slow, deep breaths. If there's a medication, this is sort of basic palliative medicine or hospice care. Is is there an emergency medication you can take when you're really short of breath? For some people, if they had a um, bronchospastic component of their disease, it's albuterol. But for somebody with really severe interstitial lung disease, it might be low-dose morphine. Like oxygen, right? Helps or with- oxygen. Exactly. <laughs> or oxygen. So yeah, so it gives the, hopefully it gives patients a little bit more control over their symptoms, which can be so distressing. Well, we have definitely have more ILD pearls coming up. Uh, Leah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, next up is Dr. Erin Noreski. It's almost like that was a segue or something. <laughs> I am truly excited to be with you today. I have spent many long car rides with the three of you. Yes. You uh, weren't there, but you were there. Aaron, <laughs> Aaron, Paul, and I were in residency together. Aaron was, Aaron was a big sister to us in residency. Uh, this so. is untrue completely. <laughs> I thought I was missing Well, you were, you were a year ahead of us, so I thought of everyone as big brothers and sisters that were ahead of us in residency. Well, my very first, and certainly my very best resident, so just delighted to have you here. Well, tell us about what, what did you want to highlight for the audience today? So before we move on from the topic of oxygen, can I just take a moment to remind everybody in the audience who's listening who cares for a pulmonary patient that oxygen is not a treatment for dyspnea and every patient you've ever met thinks that it is. Probably me too until right this moment. (laughs) So explain, please. Yeah. So patients get the misperceptions, number one, that their oxygen is meant to help their shortness of breath. And number two, that oxygen treatment may be habit forming or dangerous in some way. And unfortunately, that leads patients to these perceptions that they should be rationing their oxygen therapy or that they should only be using their oxygen therapy when they have symptoms, when really their oxygen therapy is oriented around the prevention of complications from hypoxemia, which can include pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure and are the cause of death in a lot of our patients. You made the point that uh, we're all oxygen dependent. Yeah, I don't think that was my point, but I'll take credit for it. <laughs> but we're still, we're not talking sp- any specific oxygen goals or anything, right? Like we don't need to make every patient 100% on room air. It's just... Nope. Patients who have home pulse oxygen oximeters, and they all do, by the way, whether they tell you they do or not, they do. You can get one on Amazon for like very little money. Um, Their pulse oximeters, they always want to know how, where should I be? What should I shoot for? And there's a lot of controversy about this and very little medical evidence. But I think it's a reasonable goal to tell your patient who self-measures that if you're 94 and above, there's no evidence that any more is helpful for you. Right. Like to not put on oxygen if they're 94 or above. Yeah, probably not. And then they can save their battery life or their tank. Um, you know, concentration right. for a later time when they do need it. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, I think the most recent that I heard about this is that there, you actually could put them at risk of harm if you're artificially raising the oxygen level above 94%. Right. Oxygen is an oxygenator. Yeah. And we do take antioxidants, unfortunately, some of us. Right. <laughs> Not me. All right. So that was our tangent, but I know you had something else you wanted to tell us about this uh, block trial. Oh my gosh, I'm stealing thunder. But the block trial was published 11 hours ago on the New England Journal of Medicine website, which is pretty exciting. So it's really hot off the press. And the block trial is trying to answer some of the profession's many questions about the use of beta blockers in patients who have extant COPD. 
and Block enrolled just the right people, folks with an FEV1 in the 40s who have frequent exacerbations of COPD. And it was trying to answer the questions uh, that were raised by some uh, long-running uh, studies of, of patients already out there in the community on therapy that showed that those who took beta blockers were less likely to have COPD exacerbations and right. less likely to be admitted. However, all the people who were studied in those analyses were taking the therapy for another indication right. like atrial fibrillation or cardiomyopathy. So the block trial took just folks with COPD, pretty bad COPD, and put them on metoprolol to see what would happen. And unfortunately, it wasn't effective in reducing uh, exacerbation prevalence. Time to exacerbation was not statistically different. Unfortunately, the patients were more likely to be hospitalized, though, when they did have an exacerbation. So it seems like the the benefits in the other pa- patient group was probably just from the comorbidity that the beta blocker was appropriately prescribed for. But if someone has just straight up COPD, yeah. um, you should not be putting them on beta blockers. Right. And the hazard ratio is almost twice the rate of placebo. It's 1.91. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important, though, to, to refer back to a 2017 trial from uh, internal medicine, which did show that even if your patient is in the hospital with COPD exacerbation, if they have an indication for a beta blocker, it is safe to initiate a beta blocker. So if your folk, folks with COPD who are at such risk of atrial fibrillation develop AFib in the hospital, give the beta blocker. It's going to help and the patient tolerates it. And just so I understand the study, the increased hospitalizations, were that specifically for COPD exacerbations or all hospitalizations? Specifically for, for COPD. Hassan, did you want to add anything? I know you. this was another topic that you had brought up uh, in pre-recording. Anything else about the block trial? Um, I think um, you've made all the points. Mostly, you know, I don't, I didn't feel that this trial should make us hold beta blockers on COPD patients. And that's the point that I want to echo once again. Um, I don't want the beta blockers to get bad rep. What we have is COPD, especially the hyperinflators, they cause cardiovascular complications from uh, just from the hyperinflation itself. And the heart rate may be a physiologic response to it. So blocking that heart rate may be detrimental to COPD patients unless they have a heart rate that is elevated from different indications. And I think next up, we are going to be talking about some new ILD treatments. And uh, Aaron, if you wanted to, you know, if you had any follow-up points there, you could sit next to, to Paul and, and chime in. All right. Hello. Can you tell us your full name? This is your first time on the show. We just met like five minutes ago. You seem lovely. Oh, uh, we're going to hang out. We already planned. We're going to hang out in April oh, at yeah. UCLA. Absolutely. I'll be buying drinks. <laughs> I, we should buy you a drink. You're, right. you're, you're doing us a favor. So. Yeah. I'm Chidin Machima Melton. I am an assistant professor at UCLA of pulmonary and critical care. So um, I'm going to talk about IPF. Um, I went to the latest um, updates in treatments for IPF. And it was pretty interesting, actually. You know, since 2014, we know we have these two medications now to treat it. We have perfenidone and we have natinanib. And so what they were talking about were adjunct things we can use to actually help our patients. One that I thought was fascinating was actually the use of Nissen fundiplication in patients who have comorbid GERD as well as IPF. Basically, what they demonstrated was that in these patients, um, it actually does help. There was a small study that demonstrated it actually does help reduce cough and actually helps improve FEV1 in these patients as well. So um, in your patients who have this and who have severe GERD, that's something to consider doing. 
that would be severe GERD despite use of acid blocking therapy. Correct. Like yes. they're on a PPI and you're you're kind of pulling your hair out. What am I going to do? They still have cough. They still have symptoms. Exactly. All exactly. right. And can can I ask you because uh, I think internists. I'm going to just generalize to all internists, assuming that they only know Go what ahead, I Matt. know. Uh, I know very little about ILD, uh, which is why we're going to be doing a show on that in the near future. Mm-hmm. But can you just IPF versus ILD? It's a it's a subcategory of Absolutely, ILD. Absolutely, yeah. So we're going to get into the whole alphabet soup right now. Okay. IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, is a very specific diagnosis within ILD, which is interstitial lung diseases. Yes. When we talk about interstitial lung diseases, there's a whole gamut of them. Sure. You have NSIP, non-specific interstitial lung diseases. You have interstitial lung diseases related to autoimmune conditions like systemic sclerosis, etc. IPF is one that's a progressive fibrosing condition that has no cause. It has a very classical appearance on a high-resolution CAT scan where it tends to be basally predominant. You tend to see what we call honeycomb in on it. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other features we look at, but it's a very specific entity we talk about when we talk about IPF. And often we can see this, we can make the diagnosis based on high-resolution CAT scan or we can do biopsies and we see certain patterns that we, call, we can call it UIP. All right. So, and one of these that drugs, clear. that was very clear. That's probably more than I knew about ILD at any point in my life. <laughs> right super helpful. Great. <laughs> uh, this is so great, Paul. We should have done this a long time ago. <laughs> Can I just put in a point that it's so important to refer your patients with ILD of any sort to an expert center near your, you, particularly one that has a transplant program, because these patients are very challenging to diagnose. It requires a multidisciplinary committee. Rarely it requires something very dangerous like a biopsy. Um, so these patients should not be managed in the community away from right. the expert care that they need. You're saying like a multidisciplinary team of like people who know about ILD. Uh, <laughs> not, right. That's so, exactly. so I should not be referring people from this multiplication just based on kind of a gut. gut. <laughs> no, no. And, and that's exactly. Was, was that a pun? No. Okay. Um, can I counter that? So the only thing that I wish to see is actually decentralization of that with telemedicine, because unfortunately, these are frail patients and they're in communities. And you send them to a, um, you know, a university a center of excellence. Um, these people would have to take away with them their oxygen and their equipment and have a caretaker take the day off of work and they spend an entire day. And then they have to travel and they may have an exacerbation after that, which I just hospitalized somebody because they were stuck in traffic and the fumes of that traffic exacerbated them. So unfortunately, while this is great to say at a chess conference and I'm one of the, you know, the proponents of it, I find it to be very impractical in daily life. So... We have to find a way to uh, perhaps collaborate with the center of excellence, but make it applicable in the communities. Hassan, that's exactly right, because people don't pick where they live, right? You know, you don't pick that you're going to live near a medical center that has the whole multidisciplinary approach. But at the same time, we have specific therapies that treat these patients, and you want to make sure they are plugged in with people who can diagnose them appropriately and treat them appropriately, because the gamut of ILD spans so broadly. There are some that you give them steroids, and they do better, and it almost melts away. And there are some that you need to get them on these specific IPF therapies. And there's some that you need to get plugged into transplant centers, and that's just not going to happen in your community hospital. So it's weighing up the risk and benefits, making sure you don't put your guy who's on five liters on oxygen and send him on a car ride that's going to be three hours. 
And there's also a challenge in the in the name of idiopathic because we're finding now genetic predisposition. I think a third of them have an actual identifiable genetic mutation, and there is research going right now to identify them. So one of the key points that I heard in that lecture was um, the family history becomes incredibly important as well as the occupational in those patients. And if you do find somebody that died from a lung problem to screen with low-dose CT, not high-res because it's higher radiation, um, the family members um, of that particular patient, or at least make them aware that should they have any symptoms to present and have them self-checked before they even think about it before that diagnosis. Let's talk about the, uh, the specific therapies now, now that we have much more background. I, my, my knowledge just went up 10x of IOD. Oh, great. Okay. So there are two medications that we have available that are FDA approved to treat IPF, this specific entity that we talked about. Um, and by the way, just another sort of broadening your knowledge on IPF, it is actually has a higher mortality rate than lung cancer. You know, the mortality rate is three to five years from the time of diagnosis. So this is a really serious condition. Um, and that's another reason why it's so important that we make the diagnosis early and separate it out from more treatable causes of IP, of um, ILD. So your question was possible other treatments. So um, nintenanib is one of them. Um, and then the other one's perfenidone. Um, they are both, for the most part, pretty well tolerated. The most common side effect people end up with them is um, GI upset. Um, with perfenidone, there's a sort of sun sensitivity you get as well. So you have to make sure these guys get plenty of sunscreen. In fact, I prescribe it and I give them a nice bottle of SPF 50 um, <laughs> to, to take with them as well as sunscreen. Um, so... With these medications, they've been around for a while. There, are some, there was some literature that came out last year that shows that in combination, you can actually use these two medications in combination. It's not FDA, it's not um, approved yet, but you can use them in combination. And they have um, the same level of side effects associated with it. It's pretty well tolerated. What hard, did they look at hard endpoints with that? Is it improving progression? Is it a, is it a Hail Mary pass? And we don't know if it works, but we can do, we know we can do it safely. So, so the main endpoint was safety. And that is, that's, that was, uh, that showed that it didn't show, have more side effects one versus the other. I see. However, when you're looking out three and six months, and there seems to be a separation in improvement in FEV1 as well with these patients in using two rather than one. In two rather than one. Yeah. All right. But the, I've tried that. The challenging part is getting the insurance company That's, to approve it. <laughs> yeah, Paul, these must be very affordable therapies, right? Right. Well, I prescribe them a fair amount. The prior authorization can take a little bit of work because I am not a pulmonologist and don't actually know how ILD works. But, uh, you know, once you get past those barriers, it's actually pretty straightforward. If, so if we have, if we're encountering patients on these medications, what side effects, um, what bad side effects should we look out for? You said GI upset. I, yeah. That's like every medication. Absolutely. But. Well, so it's actually not to be taken lightly. This can be really debilitating for these patients. Okay. Um, so I say GI side effects. Some of them lose a lot of weight on these medications. Uh, um, I have a patient, she, she's a classic candidate, you know, moderate um, restriction and, you know, she's kind of mobile and she on paper seems like the perfect person for one of these agents. I've tried both and she won't tolerate it. Lost about 15 pounds. Quality of life is miserable. Food doesn't taste the same. So, you know, 
GI upset diarrhea is another one. In these cases, you can actually just adjust the dose. So like with nitenanib, rather than giving 150 milligrams twice a day, you can drop the dose to 100 milligrams twice a day and just get to a dose where they'll tolerate it because we know any amount of it is beneficial for them. So. And you mentioned improving the F, do you say FEC? FEV1. FEV1. Mm-hmm. Is, are these medications a bridge to transplant or are they a palliative therapy meant to just extend life a little bit or is there any evidence that's they a do very that? insightful question so none of these medications actually cure IPF sure all these do is sort of stabilize it to allow them to continue living for longer and hopefully increasing the time to transplants IPF is progressive sure. there are some people who will go on for a long time and not progress but for the most people from the time of diagnosis, they will progress. And now you're looking around that five-year mark. So this helps reduce the loss of FEV1 um, as the patients um, go along from year to year. I think it's also important to note that our internist colleagues are absolutely welcome to treat the side effects of therapy if they feel that the side effects are mild enough that the patient may tolerate you know, an emodium or Absolutely. an antiemetic that may help with their uh, with their nausea and vomiting. Because if the patient can remain on therapy, they will gain more benefit than if they're having to reduce the dose or stop. Yeah. And then diet modification is also another thing to do as well, encouraging them to um, reduce the amount of protein they're eating with their diets. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Any other pearls, favorite pearls from the conference so far that you'd like to provide? If if not, we have we have lots of people waiting <laughs> waiting in the wings yeah, here. No, it's uh it's been a fantastic conference, and I was like, oh yeah, I know IPF, but it's it's nice to learn something new. So <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, thank awesome. you so much. Thank you. All for right, having... and you know we've already agreed we're hanging out in LA, so uh... <laughs> well, we're gonna make it happen. <laughs> we'll make it happen. Okay. Surprising to say anything uh, about Nintendo. Uh, yeah, N- Nintendo. It, it sounds like it was gonna be Nintendo, but it doesn't sound quite as fun. It's for, it's for IPF, but. It did make me think of Nintendo, and it kind of, yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Next one's going to be Sega Nib. Okay. All right. Please introduce yourself and uh, Nina, and tell me how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> I'm known as Dr. Nina. because Dr. Me, Nina. <laughs> because my last name is unpronounceable. It's melanin. The right way of saying it is melanin. And Dr. Nina, I'm looking at your name tag there. I, I literally grew up in Lansdale, PA. That's amazing. We'll talk later. Oh, absolutely. You look I've... very familiar, so maybe we ride the train <laughs> together or something. <laughs> absolutely. All right. So tell us, uh, you're an interventional pulmonologist. So I'm an interventional pulmonologist, and I made the jump from separating from the academia to the rural communities, specifically for the problem of decentralizing, really, the access of care. Uh, We've noticed it in lung cancers, the ILDs, and uh, even the basic bronchiectasis and cystic fibrosis communities that are all throughout the country and have limited time, support, um, to be able to benefit from the tertiary uh, level care. So um, I opened up a private interventional pulmonology practice that was not specifically um, associated with a healthcare system, but rather is independent to allow, from the insurance standpoint, uh, any patient that need IP to be actually served appropriately. Because otherwise you'd be considered out of network and they're out of Expense, oh, yeah. Out-of-pocket expense goes dramatically if I'm belonging if, if I belong to a specific healthcare system, which is crazy when you think about it. Normally, there should be no limitation as far as uh, access. If you need a procedure, it doesn't matter if you're in network or not. Yeah, and you're going to tell us 
specifically about access, right? <laughs> yes. So um, yesterday I attended, uh, unfortunately it was at the end of the day, I was hoping it would be actually earlier than the day, Dr. Silvestri and Dr. Uh, Rivera did a phenomenal overview of the um, screening for lung cancer. Uh, they reviewed the NSLT trials and what the problem is as far as lung cancer nowadays uh, has been shown to limit the adherence to getting a low-dose CT to be able to diagnose the patients. And um, unfortunately, when, I mean, the main pearls that you we got from the talk is whenever they looked at the distribution of the cancer screening programs for lung cancer, knowing that it's a number one killer in men and women against all other cancers combined, breast, pancreatic, colon, and um, they've noted that pretty much the socioeconomic status of the population determine the risk of suffering from lung cancer. Um, male, African-American, as well as Hispanics, Latinos are at a higher risk of actually suffering from lung cancer than the rest of the population. And unfortunately, the screening programs were concentrated in the complete opposite regions of where the patients would benefit the most from it. Yeah. And um, Cashlack Northeast was where we practice. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's plenty. If you're, if you're in the Northeast, you're good, right? You're covered. I mean, the dots are, were, there were so many dots for the centers and the screening programs uh, in the Northeast. And hardly any, when you compare the actual prevalence of lung cancer on the Northeast versus the Southeast, the Southeast is literally black from lung cancer and the, or the risk, the high risk population. And the Northeast is more limited. And then you look at the actual center that target this population, they're the complete opposite. They're concentrated in the Northeast and there's hardly any in the Southeast. Don't, Paul, don't you think that if you mapped like just like the heart disease too, like maybe it would also be the same thing? <laughs> There's I'm like, sure that's everyone's like on the coasts in the big cities, and then like all the disease is like center of the country, wherever, you know, places where the, the doctors are not. I think that's probably a safe and fair observation. Yeah. Did, did you want to say anything or, or ask a question about our recent uh, episode about medical overuse and concern for low dose CT for cancer screening? Yeah. It, this, well, it, yeah, it hasn't been released yet. This will be released before that. But we did, we we recently re reviewed a study that was done in the Veterans Health Administration. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they might have talked about this, where they, they sort of risk stratified. It was a 2018 study. Um, I can't remember which journal it was in. But they covered it in every year JAMA does this medical overuse um, series in JAMA Internal Medicine. And they covered saying that there's, there's a score that the VA developed. I think it's called the Bach score or something like that, where you, you plug in numbers and it gives you like a patient's risk. And the number needed to screen is much lower for patients that come out high risk in that score. And you're much more likely to, you know, have a better balance of harm, risk, uh, benefit to harm specifically like number of nodules you're following and, and the number of like biopsies that, that you're going to need. So that's interesting that you brought up that point. Actually, if anybody had attended the ISS SLC or the ASCO uh, conference in uh, 2018 in Canada and 2019 in Spain, they actually um, showed the Nelson trial as well as the PLCOM 2012 uh, data, which showed really that there is up to a fifth with the right prediction model. And if you take into consideration not only the smoking, not what the NSLT really has done in the United States, USPSD task force, but anyways, when you compare the organizations of 
how to detect the high-risk patient and you effectively screen those who are absolutely at a higher risk, you can have up to above 50% reduction in lung cancer in men and I think up to 40% in female. I don't have the exact numbers, but the Nelson trial was literally a bombshell in the middle of the ASCO uh, conference in 2018. And that gave us a better idea like, all right, are we doing it right? Or are we not doing it right? How come? Is there a risk benefit? And the deal was sealed, I think, with the ASCO 2019 when they showed that if you use the right calculator uh, simulator or the um, right prediction model, you are able to effectively impact and limit the amount of false positives and overuse. And those prediction models are not necessarily adopted by the majority of the centers. Um, the simple example, when you think about it, for the breast, you have the BIRADs to be able to stratify, okay, these patients should really have mammogram more frequently, or is it BIRAD 1, 2, and 3? And now we have the LRADs. And the LRADs is not adopted by all the centers. When you look at it, they still use Fleischner's criteria. So when you look at the LRADs and you use the PLCOM 2012, you end up having a better use, if you want, of the screening programs and impact a population by completing the low-dose CT, not at year one. Actually, the impact is at year two, three, if not four. And the studies that have been done in the U.S. have been limited. Once they actually do the first one, they stop. They're like, okay, I don't have nodules. My nodules are so small. I don't have to worry about it. But when you repeat, and that's the adherence problem, is when the data that was presented in the talk yesterday was they do a, even if they do a phenomenal job at capturing the high-risk patient the first year, the follow-up CAT scans are almost non-existent. I mean, they drop down to 20%, 10%, and that's how we end up missing all the, the real positive patients. Can I clarify, at which point are, is, the, is the tool, the risk stratification tool being used to say, does this person meet? I know that like you have USPSTF, they tell you who to screen, but do you apply the tool to that population that would meet screening criteria? And then you still might say, listen, technically you meet the criteria, but you're on the low risk end. We're more likely to find false positives. So we're just not going to recommend so it. So the difference between the USPSTF and the PLCOM is that USPSTF had the criteria 55 to 74, 50. Yeah. They actually applied it to all smokers. All smokers. And, that and they just was, put a, a risk calculator. Yes. And then based on that, it would tell you and if you should be screened or not. Results. Absolutely. Oh, and there was a reduction. Easier. <laughs> <laughs> just, just let me yeah. put the numbers in. Sarah, what were you going to say? Oh, five minutes left. Okay. Sorry. All right. That's all right. Um, Okay, thank you so much. Absolutely. Before you My run pleasure. off, you, you raised a point um, before we actually started recording. I, I just hope that we could actually touch on about sort of the component of stigma and shame, I think, with a lung cancer diagnosis. I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking to that a little bit, because I, I had not thought about that before. So, um, to the contrary of all the other cancers, colon, breast, lung cancer, whenever a person is diagnosed with it, they tend to feel shame because they feel that they brought it upon themselves because they have been smoking. Actually, keeping in mind that out of the patients I've had over 2,400 patients over one year period of time. And we actually looked at the amount of female that were non-smokers that were impacted by adenocarcinoma up to 22.6% were non-smokers. Obviously they have other risk factors, secondhand smoke or depend on where they lived. But 
the example that comes to mind is even though they were non-smokers, because of the stigma that exists in our society, I had, and she was actually Asian, and she ended up begging me not to tell her family members that she actually suffered from lung cancer because of that stigma. She said, just say an adenocarcinoma, please do not say that it's actually lung cancer. And that's a reality of every day. And that also impacts how many patients end up getting screened. And it's really sad when, in fact, you think about it, if you actually can capture it at stage one and stage two, and as an interventional pulmonologist, we have tools to be able to diagnose an 8-millimeter nodule close to the pleura. And that would be, for a small cell carcinoma, a cure of lung cancer. So the, we need to do a better job at increasing awareness. Everybody is, everything is pink, as I said, in October. Why can't we have the turquoise color in May for, to actually increase awareness for lung cancer? So I challenge you to do that. <laughs> All right. This that's our new our show's new mission is to improve lung cancer screening adherence. Thank we you. Will... <laughs> it's very niche. At least I'm for okay. this episode. <laughs> Thank I you. think it's a great point though. Thank you. All right. Hassan, did you wanna uh not niche, Paul. It's not niche at all. It's <laughs> Okay. Yeah, if you wanna stand and stand and deliver as they say. Hi everybody, this is Hassan. And uh, I know you called for Lansdale, PA, and I'm calling that she's my fellow countrywoman. We're both from Morocco, and I'm just, I could not be more excited. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Give us your last name. Give the audience your last name. So my first name is Hassan. Last name is Ben Chikron. I am, I've been with Chess for quite a while. I'm on the leadership right now and vice chair of the Innovations Committee. So this is part of what um, gets me out of bed every day. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm excited to be with you today. I think the only, um, uh, there's been some great points uh, and I'm just excited that they're all by female colleagues. So yay. Um, One thing I did uh, go to today, which made my day completely uh, inspiring, um, was we had uh, in the trainee lounge, just a what is it to be me session. And there was a panel of four and one of us was African-American and the other one was a nurse practitioner. And me and my other colleague were both pulmonologists and both Muslim. And uh, basically we gave our story and we started to talk to the audience and asking them questions. And they asked us about experiences and how did we get to where we are. And immediately everything veered off to imposter syndrome. And after that, a lot of people asked me, what is imposter syndrome? So I want to ask, you know, at least talk about what is imposter syndrome. And that's me sitting in a chair or vice chair, you know, position and everybody is surrounding me and I'm looking at them and saying to myself, oh my God, I'm a fraud. They're going to discover me in just a minute. Somebody made a mistake somewhere. I'm not worthy of this. So the insecurity of the success that we have and whether we deserve it or not. And it resonated with the audience and we gave them some tips on how to overcome it. And one of them was, you know, uh, just uh, ask yourself, what if? And when you see an application of a leadership position come your way, instead of looking and saying, no, it can't be me. I'm this or I'm that or I'm Muslim or I'm from Morocco or I didn't graduate from here. Just say, what if? And just do it. And I said, basically, I joked a little bit and said, the worst thing that can happen is just rejection of a pint of ice cream that's in my freezer. (laughs) (laughs) So... We, we talked about imposter syndrome on a recent show with uh, Dr. Kimberly Manning, and the, it, was, it was based on an article that uh, Dr. Reshma 
Jaxi had written. Um, she's part of Times Up Healthcare, and the the point that that we keep coming back to this, Paul, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, uh, is that a big part of imposter syndrome is a systems issue. It's not, it's not as much, everyone has a little bit of imposter syndrome, but it's, it's when you look around and you say, I don't see people like me in leadership positions. And so promoting more people, uh, more diverse people to leadership positions. And you look around and you see a diverse group of leaders, it should reduce imposter syndrome and a lot of other, the, the other things we've talked about, sexual harassment, Leah, uh, on the, our last women in medicine episode, a lot of these are issues, um, when you don't have diverse groups of people in leadership positions. And it's multifactorial. One of our colleagues said that he chose to stay in the Bronx particularly for that. And there was at least four or five people in the audience that said, well, I want to see how you two are Muslim and you're, because I feel like I have to practice uh, or to, to, to explain myself every single day about what other people do in the world. And I said, just be you because you can talk about you passionately, but you cannot talk about others. And I gave the story of this patient who came in because she was so happy that I saved her life. Her way of thanking me was she, she just could not believe this. And how, what am I going to do to thank him? She brought me the Bible in Arabic and said, I'm wow. praying for your salvation. And it was kind of a moment where you had to find common ground, like the implicit bias lecture that we had yesterday or keynote speaker, and the common ground take away the barriers and you kind of try to bridge that gap and and just approach them with empathy and kindness. But that is what we have to go every day through. And I said, you just be you. You can defend you. You can defend others that you don't know. I think we're going to have to wrap up, but I want to thank all of you. This was really fun for us. I hope you had fun as well, and uh, you're all invited back anytime. (laughs) So thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain whole. Yummy. (laughs) Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. In your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice change knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show, or send us an email or contact us at thecurbsires at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for the show, Sarah Phoebe Roberts, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I'm, I'm, I'm still Stuart Kentbrick. I'm just a, a little bit down. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Guado, reminding you that uh, Stuart Kent Brigham produced our wonderful theme music that you're probably hear, hearing play right now. And I'd like to thank our wonderful guests for taking time out of a busy conference to contribute to this show. And, of course, uh, I have to thank the fantastic Dr. William Kelly, who invited us to Chest, and his team, who has been fantastic, uh, just making us feel very welcome here. And uh, he has done a great job. Hero's work. I can't imagine how hard it is to put on a conference of this magnitude and complexity. So thank you, Dr. Kelly. That's right. Thank you, Dr. Kelly. Sarah, did you want to sign off? Uh, Yes, please. Uh, I've been and will hopefully always be Sarah Phoebe Roberts. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.
<laughs> I wish to God we could leave that in. Uh, 